1: Father, we ask that You, by the work of Your Spirit here in our midst, would cause our love to abound more and more in knowledge and in all discernment. Father, would You grow us as a people who love, to cause ever to increase in us love towards each other here in the body, as well as love towards those outside of the body, and particularly this morning, I pray, love towards you. Father, would you cause to abound in us this morning because of this passage and the work you do with it, would you cause to grow in us and to begin a continuing growing process in us of love towards, in particular towards God the Son He is the focus this morning. He is the focus for us now because by Him we come to you. He means to build a kingdom and wrap it all up and submit it to you. So ultimately, in the end, we are made to be lovers of you, Father. We get there now by growing in love for and affection for the Son displayed before our eyes, and so I ask you to do that, to display him this morning. We sang of him and of his work. Now help us to sing of him and his work in the text. You've grace to me to be clear. You've grace to us, to all of us, to listen, to think, to process, to worship, And God, would you bring out of that abounding love more and more ever-increasing with all knowledge to understand what's really going on in the world around us, who really is going on in the world around us, what it is about, who it is about. That we would live in ways that are wise and fruitful, Place us in front of you, pure and blameless on that day when you come to be glorified in all of the earth. We pray this ultimately for your great honor, because if it happens in us, it comes from you. It's from you and through you and to you are all things. So, Father, build a church today and build a church that is a church of love like you. Open up this word to us this morning, these these few verses. Help us to understand them, all the ins and outs of them, and, and then to come to the point of growth at the end. Show yourself, I pray, Father, Son, and Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your condescension brings you near and I pray be near even now and build your people for their good and for your glory I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to Philippians chapter 1 where at verse 12 we finally enter into the main body of this letter. We've been following along with the Apostle Paul as he's written introducing himself and greeting his audience did that in the first couple of verses before finally in verses 3 to 11 expressing some of the details of how and what he prays for in relation to these Christians. Initially he explains how and why he gives thanks to God for them because as he looks at them he realizes that God has worked in them to make them gospel partners with him. To make them, these Christians, a people who are with him in the gospel and with him for the gospel. And he's thankful because that's a work of God. So he gives thanks to God for that. And then, as we saw last week in verses 9 to 11, he moves on to to actually ask God for things, to petition him. Similar to how I just prayed, to ask that God would grow in these Christians' love. He would cause them to abound more and more in love. And we looked at Ephesians chapter 5 to see what we mean when we talk about love. In Ephesians 5, we see love both defined, explained a little bit, and modeled for us in Christ loving the church. He shows us what that's like and then tells husbands to love in that way. So this, this is a love worth emulating. Christ who loved the church. And through a kind of a complicated tracing out of thought last week, we saw that what that love looks like is Christ who stands and reckons that his great delight, he wants a pure spotless bride, his great delight is found in the doing good to these people, to cleanse them and wash them. And to get that, he will lay down his life, literally even for Christ, lay down his life to create a people holy and blameless, his delight and joy, a pure spotless bride. That was love. That's what we pray that would cause, be caused to abound and to grow in us with all knowledge and all discernment, that we would know what is right, what is good and fitting for us. That was the prayer. And now as we move into verse 12, we are entering the main body of the letter. And what we will see here immediately, once again, are two topics that have already been touched upon, joy and the gospel. He already raised those for us. This priority of the gospel, we're going to see, it characterizes Paul, and he means for it to characterize all Christians, us included. This gospel in which Paul rejoices, this gospel that has advanced, and as Paul rejoices in the advancement of that gospel, we're going to look at at how it advances and why there's joy. Those are kind of be our two points this morning. But if I express it all in a single sentence, here's my main objective for this morning: to encourage you and us. Let me put it in a sentence. Rejoice that God uses our lives in the advancement of the gospel. Rejoice that God uses our lives in the advancement of the gospel. That's what we're going to consider. As I said, I'm going to make two observations about kind of the advancement piece and the rejoicing piece, essentially. But before I do that, let me read the passage Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 12 through verse 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel Knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel, the former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Philippians chapter 1. Make two observations here. The first one is this the things that happen to us, and you might write that in quotations, the things that happen to us are meant for the advancement of the gospel. The things that happen to us are meant for the advancement of the gospel. Stuff happens. And all the stuff that happens including and perhaps even especially the painful stuff, the hard stuff, the distasteful stuff. All the stuff that happens to us is meant for the advancement of the gospel, to cause the advance of the gospel. That's what we're working on here to start. Verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, that's the things that have happened, which Paul knows they've heard about. He means his imprisonment for Christ. That's what he's talking about here. Paul's in prison when he writes this letter. It's not completely clear because he never actually says, but it seems likely that he's in Rome. There are a couple of hints. He talks about the the imperial guard, literally the praetorium. That's almost always a reference to Caesar's household guard. And at the end of the letter, he's going to mention Caesar's household again. It seems that he's in Rome when he's imprisoned here preached the gospel, traveled the Roman world, eventually was arrested in Jerusalem and shipped by a process of events to Rome where he was in jail had been tried and at the moment is awaiting a verdict on his life. He's not brutally imprisoned. We read the end of Acts, when he was imprisoned there, he was free to actually talk to people. People came and went, but he is indeed confined and is awaiting a verdict on his life. So he is truly imprisoned in chains. That's the stuff that's happened to him. And he says that all of that is really serving to advance the gospel. And the, the wording here gives a nod, kind of a, of a nod to the reality of imprisonment. because The feel of the wording, I, I could put it like this. This that has happened, more to the advancement of the gospel. There's a nod there. This that has happened, yeah. More, though, more so, indeed, really, many translations say, yes, there's that whole chain and confinement and maybe I'm going to die thing, more the advancement of the gospel. That's how Paul's looking at this, and he wants them to realize that. This has served, really what this is about, is the spreading the going forth of a message about Christ, which is why he can just summarize it later by saying, he calls it the Word in verse 14. He preaches Christ, proclaims Christ, proclaims Christ. This is a message about Jesus, who he is and what he's done to be the Savior of human beings. That's what he means by the Gospel. Not what you should do, what God has done. Already, in Christ. It's being advanced. There's an opportunity here to push this message forward. And it's happening in two ways. Verse 13. First, so that all the palace guard and everyone else knows that I'm here for Christ. What he means is that there's a word of mouth spreading through all the the guards and everybody else who kind of hangs around this place. They've heard that guy, Paul, is here not for mass murder, not for insurrection or rebellion or treason. He's here for some religious thing, Christ, whoever that is. That word of mouth spreads throughout all the people. Now, So it's likely that they had some idea what he meant by that because he frequently preached the gospel at his trials. So there's probably some idea. And he was free to talk to guards about the gospel, and he did, we know from the book of Acts. So probably some idea, but the the point is that what's happening is word of mouth through a whole bunch of people, most of whom are not Christians, the whole Praetorian guard and everyone else, spreading, 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 a message, an idea, of this guy is in prison because of something about this Jesus guy and something that he says about salvation and judgment. That's why he's here. So the first way the gospel advances is along the path of a lived life, a personal life testimony, an opportunity to say, here's what this person finds valuable and is willing to lay his life down on behalf of this Christ. The first way, kind of a personal testimony, lived out, sacrificing. And the second way, the gospel advances, verse 14. Most other believers have become confident because of my imprisonment to speak the word boldly. Main difference being here, this is the clear proclamation of the gospel message. As the believers themselves see Paul, regarding Christ as sufficient and Christ as his all, laying down his life to embrace imprisonment for it, they themselves are emboldened, and they then go and proclaim. So there's a, there's a dual opportunity here, an opportunity to show what it looks like for Christ to grip a life and to speak the actual message, both of which are necessary. Both opportunities are created here. Paul jailed has led to the advancement of the gospel. What an ironic coincidence. What a coincidence. I mean, what a coincidence. Who would have thought that the very thing the authorities would try to do to stop, to limit, to to curtail, to box this thing up and put a chain around it would have actually, ironically, Led to its spread, to its advance. Who would have thought that? What the Jewish leaders in Rome meant for evil, God meant for good. Really, it's about this. Yeah, 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 yeah. More the advancement of the gospel. That's what Paul is most concerned the Philippians know. That's why he starts, I want you to know, brothers, not that I'm in jail and that I'm okay. They already know he's in jail. If they receive a letter from him, he's still alive. I don't want you to know that I'm in jail and that I'm alive. I want you to know what's going on. That what has happened to me is serving something. It's got a purpose in it. It's meant for the advancing, the spreading, the going forth of the gospel. Really, that's what it's about. They must know that. Paul addressed the very same, if you think about it, Paul addressed the very same message in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 to a totally different church, where there he described Christians as jars of clay, broken that the light that's in them might shine out. He says there, Very similar message. We are constantly given over to death in our bodies so that purpose meant so that the life of Christ will will well up in us and flow out and other people will see it. That's what's going on. There's a point to all of this. All the stuff that happens to you. Philippian church, you have to know that. Corinthian church, you have to know that. Church, we have to know that. All the things that happen to us, all the stuff, I'm saying that euphemistically, got that? All the stuff that happens to us It's on purpose. It's got an intention behind it, a divine providential from the God who reigns over all things and through all things is carrying out his purpose. There is an intention in this. You are cracked on purpose that the light in you may shine out, that opportunity may be created to explain this is what that light is. Let me explain it to you in word. Switch metaphors you are a water pipe pierced on purpose, so the water can come out. Now, if, if you're an indoor plumbing pipe, that's a problem. But if you are an irrigation soaker line, that's the point. Which are you? You're a soaker line on purpose, that what's in you would come out, and the little puddle would spread. Your life would show something, and opportunity to, to in word, explain what this is, where it comes from, what it's about, why. On purpose. Paul has a burden throughout the New Testament the church understand on purpose God places us in positions where things happen and all the things that happen good or bad as in our evaluation all of them are designed to do something to advance the gospel first in me in you personally Now clearly The burden of this passage is is the spread of the gospel to to those out there. But in you personally first, the gospel has advanced to some degree in Paul. And we see the gospel advancing in some degree in the believers who are emboldened to preach. It's, It's come to grip them in some new way. So first, the gospel has to spread into you like a big puddle to soak all of the inside of you, to grip you, to change you. And one of the realities, one of the realities for us is that we often don't realize how much we need Christ until we need Christ. So what does he do? He pierces you to show you something. He pokes a hole in the cup so that you realize it's empty, in fact. It all runs out and I have nothing left. So often, it's a tragic truth about Christians, but so often Christ is the port of last resort, graciously concerned to get us into port. He brings storms. He wants to grow the gospel in you, this message about Christ, not just the initial Savior of you. You who are Christians, you already know that, but to realize he is my Savior today. He is the one who redeems me today, who fixes me right now, who is the only hope, the only hope I have today. And so he will cause stuff to happen to cause that to grow into you and then you a changed person that will flow out of you to those around and in prison they will say that is unique. The Philippians probably read this and thought yeah, I remember when I first heard of you in prison and saw something that was unique. You rejoicing in the middle of the night and then an earthquake came. Stuff happens to us intended by God to cause the gospel to grow in us and then to leak out of us that it might actually run to go to others that they would see what it looks like to have a life changed and then they would then hear, they would be inquiring and interested and Christians would be emboldened to explain in word what these deeds are about. Intention behind all the stuff that happens, is so, so, so important for us to understand in the middle of the stuff. Through deed and in word, He is doing great good, using you, His simple servant, to lift up the gospel, to exalt Christ, to you and to those around you. It's how Christ is honored. It's how we are changed. It's how the the people around are drawn to him. Cracking pots and piercing water lines. That's what Paul says is going on. The first point. The stuff that happens to us, all the stuff, is meant to advance the gospel. The second observation, though, is the surprising one, I think. The response to that fact. Here's the second point. Such gospel advancement is cause for rejoicing if your loves are in order. Such gospel advancement is cause for rejoicing if your loves, L O V E S, loves. are in order. The surprising thing here is his attitude about all this. He is filled with joy. Verse 15. Paul, second paragraph, Paul now turns to acknowledge an issue of which they are aware. Some, some of these bold brothers that have been ignited to preach, Indeed, as you know, preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Or, might translate it, from envy and a contentious spirit. Others, though, preach from goodwill. So there are a whole bunch of people preaching. The gospel is advancing. But all these preachers are engaged along two different agendas. Verse 16, one out of love, it's love for Paul, contrasting with the other's attitude towards Paul, one out of love for Paul, they know that what would bless Paul, if you think of our love paradigm, they're sitting here, they're looking at Paul in prison, they see that what would bless him who is living and dying for the gospel, what would bless him would be to know that though he's chained, the gospel is not. And so they're going to lay down their lives to put the gospel out there. Love to Paul. They aren't the problem. The others are those who, verse 17, proclaim Christ out of rivalry, factionalism, out of a party spirit. They are not sincere, but rather are thinking to afflict him while he is in prison. So we need to understand this clearly. We know what's going on here. They are not preaching a false gospel. It's important to understand. The, these ones, this, this this problem group here, they are preaching the truth according to Paul. They are preaching a message with which Paul completely agrees. That's why he can lump them into the group that is boldly speaking the word, who are preaching Christ, who are proclaiming Christ, who are proclaiming Christ. He says it several times. He puts them all in that group because he says they are indeed accurately, clearly proclaiming Christ. We are on the same page here. Paul has no problem whatsoever confronting people who are proclaiming a false message. He does it repeatedly. He does it fearlessly. And he doesn't do it here. He has zero disagreement with him. So there is nothing here, that I'm trying to guard this repeatedly and clearly, there is nothing here that reinforces some sort of wishy-washy, compromising spirit. Well, as long as we're all talking about Jesus, we're all on the same team. Let's just get along. As long as you say C-H-R-I-S-T, Great. I just rejoice in that because we're both talking about Christ. There's nothing here about that. Paul understands what they're talking about and says that is the true gospel according to Paul. So the problem here is nothing to do with false message. They're preaching his message. The problem lies in motive, rivalry, contentious, party spirit. Those are the words in the passage. Contrasted with love of Paul, they hope to cause him affliction, trouble. Not physical trouble, he's already in prison. Emotional trouble. The trouble of, of a factionalism sort. Perhaps easiest to understand this if you put yourself in the mind of First Corinthians. Remember how in First Corinthians, we preached this some time back, one of the problems they had there was factionalism, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, etc., etc. People picking camps and following leaders. Some here are deliberately doing that. Perhaps thinking that Paul is maybe a little too high and mighty, I am the apostle by the appointment of God, listen to me. Maybe they didn't like that. They wanted to knock him down a couple of steps. For whatever reason, He's in jail. They are deliberately engaging in this, thinking how painful it must be, how galling it must be to Paul to hear that while he is he's sidelined and can't do anything about it, the first church of Apollos is just growing by leaps and bounds. I mean, have you heard about the first church of Apollos? They had to expand their sanctuary. They're getting so so big, especially after all those folks from the Church of Paul transferred their membership. Paul hasn't been around much recently. They haven't heard him preach, so they don't like the, 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 the new guy. So they've moved over, and Apollos is just, man, he's on TV now. <laughs> Paul hears about that in jail. Oh, it must be galling. Some of the Praetorian Guard even, they started to go to church. They go to Apollos' church. New sanctuary, moved to two services. Oh, it's just awesome. Too bad, Paul. How that must sting him to have lost his starting job while sidelined. Except that it doesn't. It doesn't sting him at all. He isn't irritated or hurt. Not filled with complaint or grumbling. Why not? Because his loves are in order. He loves in the right order. He loves many things, but he loves them in the right order. Christ above all. Christ first. Verse 18, what then? This is the situation. That's what these folks are doing. What then? Only that in every way, in both cases, whether in false motives or with true, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. He doesn't commend false motives, he just doesn't care. He's got his loves in right order. This is happening. I don't care what's happening to me. How I, a simple servant, am being used to advance the gospel, who cares? The one whom he loves is being honored and blessed. He looks over and says, there's Christ, exalted, lift up. That is my joy, and I am plenty willing to lay down all of my life if that will happen. If he will be pressed forward, leaked out, spread, soaked into all of the world and all of the church, I do not care what happens to me. My own security, my own safety, my own freedom, my own reputation is of no consequence to me. In fact, all of that is just rubbish and passing away. If Christ would be known and Christ would be explained and expressed and embraced and would more deeply grip his people, bless the name of the Lord. I do not care about me. His loves are in order. And right there that puts a finger on our problem. One that we meet when stuff happens to us. The problem that we have, and you know you have, is that most of the time when stuff happens to us, we grumble and complain. We grumble and complain. I'm not talking about, carefully, I'm not talking about the wincing when the blow first hits you. I'm talking about what happens next. What you tell yourself about the blow. What you counsel yourself about how you feel about that and how you feel about the person who hit you and how you feel about the God who allowed it and what's going on here. All of that, what happens afterwards, what happens in here, so often, unfortunately, is grumbling and complaining. And it reveals to us, maybe it reveals to you even now, I I pray it reveals to you, brother, sister, it opens up something in front of you and shows you your love's disordered. Shows you that in fact you are more concerned about your own comfort and your own reputation and your own security than you are about the advancement of the gospel that's meant to happen in that stuff that just happened. So often, you don't love Christ above all. So often, you seek your joy in the things that are right here and grumble and complain and mourn and sorrow when someone lays a finger on them and they are taken away or compromised. May God grow your faith that this Christ is your only hope. I'm going to say that again and think about that. May God grow your faith that this Christ, not the stuff that was just compromised by whatever happened, that this Christ is your only hope. That you need Him magnified in you. You need word of Him expanded in you and so do others. May God warm your heart to love this Christ above all to long for Him to be honored and lifted up. May He open your eyes to see anew the glory of the Son and to see anew His first, His initiated love towards you and to see anew the depth of the sin that He has forgiven you of. To see anew how committed He is to you laying down even His life for you to claim you as His own. So think about that. May God grow your faith as you consider this Christ. Put your mind somewhere into the reality of John 17, verse 5, when Christ praying talks about, asks the Father to restore to him, restore to me, Father, the glory that I had in your presence before the world began. Think of who this Christ is. Think. Think. Christian, to set your mind, if you can, as much as you can, empowered by the Spirit, put your mind in the communion of the Holy Trinity. Jesus talks about the glory He had before the world began, before there was anything, there was God, one true God, existing forever in three persons, God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Spirit in a holy, perfect, marvelous communion with each other. And this Son is the one upon whom the Father gazed, looked at, communed with for eternity past. And this Son, in whom the fullness of deity dwells, this Son, as the Father looks on Him, He sees in this Son the complete, glorious existence of Every single perfect attribute you can imagine. He is all of it. Majestic. The Son. And the Father looks at the Son and communes with Him and relates to Him in the Trinity forever past, before the world began. And what wells up in the Father as He looks at this glorious One is tremendous pleasure, joy, love, delight. Can you put yourself there back before the world began into that holy communion? A fly on the wall if you could. You would see beauty and glory and pleasure upon pleasure upon pleasure as the Father says of the Son repeatedly. Awesome! Awesome! glorious, mighty, majestic, beautiful beyond all description. You are my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. The Son of His pleasure. Christ. We have an immensely intensely, eternally, happily loving Father because we have an immensely majestic Son. Awesome is His name. And the Father in love then sent this Son here to get you. Think of it. This holy communion, Father and Son relating to each other in such eternal delight, the Father then says to the Son, Go get them. I will give them to you. Go get them. Sends him to be humbled as a servant, humbled to take on the form of not just a man, but of a lowly man, humbled as a man, as a servant, to be humiliated. Think of it. To be argued with and baited. This son. To be shouted at and scorned. To be mocked and rejected. Beaten and spit upon. Crowned with thorns. Nailed naked to a cross to be cursed. This son. That happened. And all of that happened really for the advancement of the gospel. That the glory of the Son would be clearly seen and displayed before all of humanity. The wisdom and the power of God. The ability to remove sin and the actual doing of it. As this glorious Son hangs naked, killed, cursed, buried in a tomb. The glory of His grace is shown to get you. You you have to see this son in this tomb for you. Though you have no right to it, no claim to it, steeped in iniquity, in deep-seated insurrection and insubordination and defiance, That's who you are. And may God make you more and increasingly aware of the depths of it, not to crush you, but to make you cry for joy because this is who you are and to the grave you were headed, but this Son took on a body to get you, to save you, to bring you all the way back into that Holy Communion that you would delight, delight, delight and experience the pleasure of the Father and the Son to each other poured on you. Oh, that you would see that. How He has first loved you. How He has mightily dealt with all of your trouble, removed all of your enemy's hold on you, and has promised you, given you a down payment, the Spirit who lives in you. You are my son, my daughter, my heir. You are mine. Because this Son came to get you. Oh, how He has sought you well yet at a distance, loved you well an enemy, was bruised for your iniquity and crushed for your transgression and has been stamped forever approved. He is forever honored as the Son of the Father's pleasure, the Savior of glory. He is the delight of the perfect One and the only hope of us who are not perfect. He's the only treasure who will satisfy your heart. He is the only king worthy of your allegiance. He is the only deliverer from wrath. He is the only fountain from which the Spirit of love is outpoured. It is supremely right that this Christ be proclaimed by any means. And it is your pleasure to have him proclaimed in every means. Christian come awake come awake and look at the light and momentary afflictions that you endure come awake light and momentary stuff happens to you that this Christ may be proclaimed and sung over you and become the delight of your heart forever, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever ever. It is the deepest joy of every Christian to see this Beloved One lifted up. It's what your heart was made for. It's what the world needs. It is what is worthy of Him. Bless God that He means to orchestrate all of the stuff that happens in our lives to advance this message of Christ to cause you yourself to lean on Him, to be saturated with Him so that what flows out of you is a loving, rested delight proclaimed in deed and then explained in word as you are wooed, won over by a majestic lover May He open your eyes and cause you to see Christ anew and to regard as comparative rubbish all that you will lose in this life. May He make you contagious. May He grip you and fill you with a sense of delight and joy and love and peace and rest and hope. Christian, this son came to earth to get you. You have been gotten. Bless the Lord. Simply a servant now, he will use you to proclaim himself to you. And he will use you to proclaim himself to others. Bless the Lord. So rejoice that God uses your life and all that it is, in the advancement of the gospel. Pray now and ask him to meet you, ask him to draw near to you, maybe to convict you of complaining, but more than that, to to cause you to see anew his glory and to rejoice in him. Pray.